All right, we're back. We ended the last segment with some quirky science stuff, so let's do some more of that. Well, at least science, anyway. Here's one with a local angle. Last week, UC Irvine geneticist Francisco Ayala won the $1.5 million Templeton Prize. I can't help but think of Francisco Ayala as a UC Davis professor, which he was when I was a student here. He was then and continues to be one of the... uh, the big names in modern genetics. 70s, the fact that uh, Dr. Ayala, along with Theodosius Dobzhansky and, and G. Ledyard Stebbins were all in the faculty of the genetics department meant they were considered uh, one of the best in the country. But at some point he got wooed away by UCI and uh, has done some good work down there. But uh, that's not what won him this prize. The John Templeton Foundation grants this award every year to the individual who makes exceptional contributions to affirm spirituality. Dr. Ayala was at one time a priest, and I must say I find this award a little bit odd. He was quoted as saying, I see religion and science as two pillars. He was quoted as saying, I see religion and science as two of the pillars upon which American society rests. Adding, we have these two pillars not talking, not seeing they can reinforce each other. Dr. Ayala has long worked to foster dialogue between religion and science and said tension between the fields has subsided over time. Back in 1981, he was an expert witness in a U.S. federal court challenge that helped overturn an Arkansas law mandating the teaching of creationism alongside evolution. Three years later, the National Academy of Sciences asked Ayala to serve as principal author of Science, Evolution, and Creationism, which categorically refuted creationism and intelligent design. Ayala has said efforts to block religious intrusion into science equate with, quote, the survival of rationality in this country, end quote. He said, the Bible is not a textbook about science. It's not introductory astronomy. That's why I find this Templeton Prize a bit odd. In past years, it's been given to more traditional religious figures, including Billy Graham, as well as other scientists and philosophers. John Templeton, the president of the foundation named after his late father, said Ayala was selected for the breadth and depth of his analysis focused on discovery. His clear voice in matters of science and faith echoes the foundation's belief that evolution of the mind and truly open-minded inquiry can lead to real spiritual progress. To that, we would add... And that when it comes to science meaning religion, Star Trek comes to mind. And if a Johns Hopkins University physicist William Edelstein is right, well, it's more religion than science. As we all know, the Starship Enterprise... Uh, traverses vast interstellar distances by going at warp speed. And of course, as far as we know, there's no way to do that. But uh, even if you got uh, close to the speed of light, William Edelstein thinks you're still going to have trouble. In fact, uh, he thinks it would kill everyone on board to do so. In a new study, he examined what would happen if a spacecraft of the future could attain 99% of the speed of light. At that speed, the stray hydrogen atoms drifting in the near vacuum of space would smash into the ship at such speed and in such numbers that protons would be stripped from the atoms and pass through the metal and bodies of crewmen inside. Edelstein notes that a fatal dose of radiation for humans is 6 sieverts, 
but he told Space.com that his calculations show that his space traveling at, at this near warp speed would receive 10,000 sieverts every second. Star Trek fans have protested this conclusion, saying that the Enterprise's electromagnetic shields could block such radiation. Eh, but Dr. Edelstein doubts that it's going to be possible to construct such a shield, and for that reason says that extraterrestrial visits to Earth are extremely unlikely. Adding, getting between stars is kind of impossible based on what we know right now. And in a less theoretical study, it turns out that a team of NASA scientists in in Antarctica recently drilled a 600-foot hole through the ice sheet and then lowered a video camera to take a look at what they'd find. We were operating on the presumption that nothing's there, NASA ice scientist Robert Binshodler told Discovery News. But to their surprise, the scientists found an orange shrimp-like amphipod and a jellyfish thriving in the supposedly uninhabitable water beneath the tons of ice. Binshadler said we were just gaga over the shrimp-like creature. It was a shrimp you'd enjoy having on your plate. I don't know. Speak for yourself, doctor. Biologists suspect the creatures did not migrate in from the open ocean, which lies dozens of miles from the site, but instead have evolved to live under the glacier without light or warmth. Since these animals are relatively complex, they also suspect there must be a rich source of simpler organisms thriving there for them to feed on. This discovery has stoked the imagination of biologists who wonder what, me, what might be found elsewhere in the solar system. Jupiter's icy moon Europa and Saturn's moon Enceladus are both believed to have frozen seas beneath the, their ice surfaces. And speaking of uh, planetary surfaces, the, the newest estimates are that Concepcion, Chile, in the wake of that recent earthquake down there, moved 10 feet that sounds impossible, but if you go look at photos from 1906 and show what the San Andreas Fault did in the Great San Francisco Earthquake, you can see evidence of fences that moved 16 feet. And boy, next time we see that kind of motion, our, our, our lawyer our lawyer is going to have a field day here in America fighting over uh, you know who owns what. All right, and this next item I think I'm just going to have to quote from the Week magazine to keep myself out of trouble said the week last month, looking at curvy women can be as rewarding for men as the buzz from drugs or alcohol, a new study suggests. Scientists in Georgia asked a group of male subjects to view photos showing the naked backside of women before and after surgery that gave them more hourglass-like figures, that is to say, higher hip-to-waist ratios. When the men checked out photos of women were described as J-Lo type figures, big hips and fleshy bottoms, parts of the brain associated with rewards lit up, including areas that respond to alcohol and drugs. Researchers say the intensity of the rewards felt just by viewing attractive women may explain pornography addiction and other extreme sexual behavior by men. And again, I'm just quoting from this article. The irony is that while men appear to be hardwired to prefer wider hips and generous backsides, evolutionary indicators of health and the ability to give birth, the Caucasian westernized female has somehow been duped into thinking men like very skinny, wafy Kate Moss-type girls, researcher Steve Playtech told the Atlantic Journal-Constitution, adding, curviness is worth its weight in reproductive gold. 
Again, that is researcher Stephen Playtech speaking, not Douglas Everett. All right, from the science slash medicine department, we have, well, there's a headline on this article that I just can't resist. We're not sure this would pass muster with America's TV networks, but new scientists labeled this one, Meet the Penis's Good Bacteria. Magazine noted a flap of foreskin isn't the only thing missing after a circumcision. Microbes that call the penis home disappeared too. They think that's perhaps why the SNP cuts the risk of getting HIV. Lance Price at the Translational Genomics Research Institute in Flagstaff, Arizona, studied the microbes found from penises of 15 HIV-negative men, all of whom had participated in a study in Uganda, which showed that circumcision halves the chances of getting the HIV virus. The team found 38 families of bacteria before circumcision and 36 after. But the community had changed. Gone were the diverse population of bacteria intolerant of oxygen and linked with vaginal infections. And uh, replacing them were a more homogeneous, air-loving type of bacteria, which were more typical of other patches of skin. Interesting finding. Price thinks that some of the expelled bacteria provide an immune response on the uncircumcised penis, causing immune cells to shuttle HIV through the body, which I think is a bit speculative. And uh, the magazine said this may mean that antibiotics could target specific bacteria to reduce a person's risk of catching the virus, which is even more speculative. But, uh, but interesting research. And yes, unlike television networks, we are free to use words like penis and vagina on this program. And this is currently allowed even to people who are not licensed physicians. And we docs may not be doing our job as well as we should uh, in the light of the following uh, blurb from researchers at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. They note that although there is no evidence of a link between autism and vaccines, about 1 in 10 U.S. parents still refuse to vaccine their children in 2009 out of safety fears. And reportedly a quarter of those believe vaccines can cause autism. That's according to a survey of 1,500 parents of under 17-year-olds. Recent LA Times article on this noted that uh, the federal, what's called vaccines court, ruled in three separate cases that the mercury-containing preservative thimerosal does not cause autism. This finding supports the scientific consensus on the matter, but disappointed parents were convinced that their child's illness was caused by vaccines. And I'm sure it also in turn then disappointed those parents' lawyers LA Times noted the court had ruled 13 months ago that a combination of measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, commonly known as the MMR, and thimerosal does not cause the disorder. So the new ruling may finally close the bulk of litigation on the matter. Don't hold your breath on that one. The earlier ruling had been appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals, and this one most likely will be too, but most experts believe the court will uphold the ruling. A third legal claim that the MMR vaccine alone causes autism has been withdrawn by uh, complaining parents. Apparently more than 5,000 parents had filed claims with the vaccine court, formerly known as the U.S. Court of Federal Claims, seeking damages because they believed their children had developed autism as a result of vaccinations. They reacted bitterly to Friday's ruling. Commenting on the rulings, Dr. Paul Ofit at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia said the idea that vaccines or thimerosal cause autism 
had its day in scientific court and was shown not to hold up. Parents and advocacy groups argued that the ruling represents a conspiracy to protect vaccination programs. You know, we like talking about, quote, conspiracy theories, unquote, in this program quite a bit. We're sorry to report that uh, the the prime quote we had from John Dean on this years ago was apparently made when we had the uh, microphone turned off. Somehow the phrase conspiracy theory entered into our conversation to which he said, you know, I don't believe in conspiracy theories unless they're real. But to return to the vaccine item, I think we mentioned this in February, but um, the discredited 1998 paper which linked the MMR vaccine to autism has been retracted by the Lancet magazine. The journal cited falsehoods that were exposed back in February by the UK General Medical Council following a lengthy investigation of lead author Andrew Wakefield and two co-authors. And speaking of uh, bad medicine, a couple of articles in the last couple of months about how the swine flu was producing all kinds of uh, fake treatments. In fact, Parade Magazine got on board, noting that the EPA was warning consumers about unscrupulous vendors hawking aerosols and foggers, which claimed that they can kill airborne flu viruses. The EPA has not registered or approved any foggers or aerosols that can kill viruses in the air, said EPA spokesman Dale Kemery. Even if an effective aerosol existed, the instant someone walked into the room, the air would again be contaminated. Apparently, some uh, little while back, federal officials sent warning letters to promoters of more than 140 swine flu-related products, including well-known alternative medicine advocate Andrew Wheel for his immune support formula. Consumer Reports has also warned subscribers to be wary. Sadly, it's not just a rogue websites that are trying to cash in on swine flu fears. Apparently, makers of Dial Soap, Kleenex, Clorox, and other big brands launched a joint promotional campaign costing up to a million dollars. The FDA is reviewing the campaign, which included a video that said, germs are tiny organisms that can cause disease. According to the CDC, up to 80% of infectious diseases like the flu are spread by your hands. That's why frequent proper hand washing is so important to prevent the spread of flu and other viruses and germs. An antibacterial soap like Dial, complete foaming hand wash, kills 99.9% of germs. Well, of course, there's a problem with that. Uh, Antibacterial soap uh, might also kill viruses, but viruses are not bacteria. And boy, I got to say, I was in a uh, a pharmacy a couple weeks back, and a couple ladies in the aisle next to me started pulling off some homeopathic products to put in their uh, basket, and I just couldn't help myself. I said, uh, ladies, as a physician, I, I do not recommend homeopathic products. The science behind them makes no sense. And on that note, we'd like to refer you back to our own archives for our interview with Simon Singh, the co-author along with Edzard Ernst of Trick or Treatment, the Undeniable Facts About Alternative Medicine. I believe Dr. Ernst has a standing $10,000 offer to anyone who can demonstrate that homeopathic remedies work. You know, sometimes I think, though, you just want to just throw in the towel and cash in on the public's gullibility. I mean, I'm tempted just to go down to the local Olympic-sized pool and toss in an aspirin tab, then take a glass out of that and go dump it in another swimming pool and take that out and do that a few times to where you can be pretty much guaranteed there's not a single molecule of aspirin left, and then start marketing it as homeopathic aspirin, which, folks, is exactly what the manufacturers of so-called homeopathic remedies do. 
fact, my local supermarket was selling one remedy supposedly for the flu, speaking of flu remedies that are bogus, that uh, was based, it turns out, upon taking a duck's liver, pureeing it, and diluting it down like, I don't know, a million fold, so you have enough for 20 million doses worth of medicine, and then stocking them in the supermarkets. And no, I, I don't know why this is still allowed. But uh, speaking of drugs, uh, apparently tossing your old drugs is not so simple. Article in the Sacramento Bee by Anita Creamer talked about why. Well, most people dispose of their medicines by flushing them down the toilet. It turns out water treatment plants can't routinely process uh, discarded and excreted pharmaceuticals because, let's face it, <laughs> most of the medicines you take exit the body. The result of this is that uh, the drinking water that reaches 46 million Americans is laced with trace amounts of pharmaceuticals. As we talked about briefly with Dr. Dave Schneider recently, uh, having chemicals in your water is, is sometimes a pretty bad idea. Researchers have shown that enough excreted birth control medication has gotten into our watersheds to disrupt the endocrine systems of amphibians and fish in many parts of the country. Of course, what do you do? Apparently, for most drugs, the Don't Flush Your Meds program and the California State Board of Pharmacy follow current and rather complicated U.S. FDA administration guidelines. Consumers are supposed to keep most old medicines in the original vial, scratch out identifying patient information, and mix the meds with water and tiny amounts of something that no one else would find palatable, like kitty litter, cleaning powder, or coffee grounds. Then, if you're following this advice, which I've got my doubts about, you're supposed to uh, seal the uh, vials with tape and further seal the tape vial in a small box or margarine container. Then you're supposed to toss the sealed and tainted meds into the trash, having thwarted any possibility that wayward children, marauding pets, or druggy-minded scavengers might accidentally overdose on these discarded medicines. Apparently, if you live in Sacramento County, residents there can turn in most meds uh, and most controlled substance at County Waste Management's North Area Recovery Station. And I'm quoting the article here. It says, West Sacramento and Folsom residents can turn over unused medications to local police. And I, I'm sure they're grateful for that gift. The article cited Paul Lofholm, past president of the California Pharmacist Association, saying you have to render them unusable but that they rightfully belong back at the pharmacies were used to disposal of drugs. Article notes that since 2000, hospitals, pharmacies, and nursing homes have been required to, con to contract for the incineration of expired prescription drugs. And, and sadly, apparently, like in, out in Sacramento County, consumer take-back programs at pharmacies aren't legal. State law allows unused and, op and unopened prescription medications to be collected from nursing homes for redistribution at low cost to needy Californians in some counties. I mean, for years I've gathered up uh, uh, expired medications and uh, sometimes taken them to foreign countries. And, and by that, I don't mean medicines that expired in 1963. I mean something that, you know, most medicines are good past their expiration date. I mean, that's, that's a fact. I've gone to many medical lectures that, that talked about this. If it's stored properly, there's nothing magical about that date. Uh, most things are good, you know, months and, and maybe in some cases years beyond that date. I mean, I shouldn't make that a blanket rule and, you know, tell you, tell you to keep using your medicine that expired, you know, in 1999. On the other hand, I know, I, I know people that have come in that, you know, just tossed their medicine because the expiration date was like last Thursday. 
And I have to say, no, 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 it, 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 it probably was still okay. You know, I think we've run out of this segment, uh, too. I don't know where the time goes, but it does go. So let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.